0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients. As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop. Learn more at
1: meta.com/slash/metaverseimpact. It's Friday, July twenty-second, twenty sixteen, and you're listening to Inquiring Minds. I'm Andrea Viscontis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari. Each week, we bring you a new in-depth exploration of the space where science, politics, and society collide. We endeavor to find out what's true, what's left to discover, and why it all matters.
1: You can find us online at motherjones.com inquiringminds or inquiringshow.tumblr.com. You can also find us on Twitter at Inquiring Show and Facebook. And you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can also subscribe to the show on iTunes or any other podcasting app.
2: Imagine a future where parents make babies in the laboratory rather than the bedroom, selecting specific embryos that have the best mix of their genetics to avoid debilitating early childhood diseases or even lowering the risk of later onset degenerative diseases. It sounds a little bit like science fiction, but many of the technologies that will allow this to happen already exist. That's why our guest this week predicts that future will be here in as little as 20 years. Hank Greeley is a professor of law at Stanford University, and if you thought a lawyer is sort of a weird choice for this show... I did too, but Hank specializes in the ethical, legal, and social issues that arise from advances in biosciences, particularly from genetics, neuroscience, and human stem cell research. I stumbled on Hank years ago because he specializes in the intersection of neuroscience and the law, but he's the author of a new book out now called The End of Sex and the Future of Human Reproduction, and I could not resist hearing his prognostications on this show. What do you think about the idea of human reproduction moving out of the bedroom and into the laboratory?
1: You know, of many of the topics that we cover on this show, I feel like this one really is at the intersection of science and policymaking. I think the cultural shift that could happen if you don't need to have sex to make babies you know, I mean, there are obviously you already don't need to do that. I mean, you can, you know, there there are methods of doing it, but not even to need a person of the other sex. I mean, you know, we're talking about, you know, essentially creating an embryo from cells in your body that aren't eggs and sperm. <laughs> it would fundamentally change so many things about our society. And it's like, you know, it's it's kind of mind blowing to imagine a world in which you can choose exactly when you're going to have a child and how many and what kind and all of that kind of stuff and the you know responsibility that comes with that choice uh, and also the freedom but you know the the kind of societal consequences could be really you know mind-boggling.
2: It's enormous and I put myself into this into the situation of rewinding the clock to when I had a kid and seeing would I make this choice would I go for the laboratory model and I have to admit if the future he laid out uh, could become a reality I would do it I would do it for all of the practical reasons none of the science fiction you know Gattaca type reasons but for the certainty um, that existed of avoiding certain Ah, uh, diseases that are fatal uh, that come up in one to you know, around one percent of pregnancies right now,
1: yeah. and I don't know that I would have had a child when I did if it wasn't for the notion of a biological clock. I probably would have put it off even longer. And even now, I regret having put it off that long because now I realize that you know my life is finite, and I only have a certain number of years left with my son. I know that sounds, you know, kind of weird, but, uh, you know, I wish I had had more time with him already. And he's only two. (laughs) I mean, maybe, maybe I'll change my mind a few years from now. But I don't know that I would have made that same choice never having had the kid. I I don't know. It, it, It really is something that I feel will fundamentally shift how we think about making and starting and having families
2: you know both of us are going to be in deep trouble when our kids finally grow up to the point where they listen to our show right
1: (laughs) oh they'll be so much more into other things by then i mean think about it 20 to 40 years from now which is the time span that we're talking about you know the world will be so different i think but let's let's talk about that uh at the end of the interview
2: so with that let's take a short break and we'll be back with my interview with hank Greeley.
3: this episode is sponsored by magoosh magoosh provides online test prep for the gre gmat lsat sat act toefl and praxis it can be hard to find the time and money to prepare for standardized tests magoosh offers a better solution affordable and effective test prep that is 100 online can log in anytime, anywhere, on your computer, tablet, or phone to study when you want, where you want. If you get stuck on a problem or concept, Magush offers friendly email help from their team of expert tutors. Magoosh's complete test prep starts at under $100, and they guarantee you will improve your score, or they'll give you your money back. Join the one and a half million students who have chosen Magoosh. Go to Magoosh.com, that's M-A-G-O-O-S-H.com right now, and get 20% off with code MINDS, M-I-N-D-S, at checkout. Thanks, Magoosh, for supporting Inquiring Minds. Magoosh, prep smart, go far, enjoy the ride.
2: Hank Greeley, welcome to Inquiring Minds. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. I want to start from the perspective of a parent, because how we have children these days has dramatically shifted from even 20 years ago. When I had a child, I initially thought, oh, it's going to be this romantic notion, we'll have sex, we'll get pregnant, and then we'll have a baby. It didn't work out that way. I had to go through a series of conversations once my wife got pregnant. And it indicated that how we think about reproduction is probably shifting. Do you see it that way as well?
4: Yes, I think so, because the technologies that are possible today, uh, not only during pregnancy, but even preconception, uh, have expanded the range of choices and options. That has good sides. It also has deeply disconcerting sides. I mean, having to make decisions that you didn't have to make 20 years ago has minuses as well as pluses, and it, it's not true for everybody. I mean, most people in the in the world continue to have babies in a profoundly old-fashioned way. Many people in the United States still have babies in a pretty old-fashioned way, but the curve is shifting, and more and more people are moving into a more technologically affected uh, conception and pregnancy. and And I think that's only going to continue.
2: So let's talk about some of the prognostications of how this is shifting under our foot and then the underlying why and then the most fun question and why we have you on this is, is what do we do about those choices? Uh, so let's start with the, the science that is shifting things now. You mentioned the word choice, which is, I think, an interesting word here because it's not a word that existed 100 years ago when it came to pregnancy. How do we have more choice now when it comes to reproduction?
4: Well, we already have a variety of new choices, including the last 30 years or so, fetal testing, fetal genetic testing. Over the last 25 years, something called pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, which I think is going to be a huge, uh, hugely used technology in the future. We have a wide variety of ultrasound scans and other sorts of ways of seeing how the pregnancy is going that didn't exist in the past. In some severe cases, there are the possibilities of fetal surgery, of actually intervening inside the womb. And these are are new. Uh, I think, though, the biggest difference, and the one that's about to go from significant to enormous, is the ability to See in advance and select the embryos we like based on their genetic traits.
2: So a situation could emerge where we could have 100 embryos and we choose the one that has it doesn't have any defects or doesn't have any situations. Is that what you're sort of implying? Yeah, so I lay this out in,
4: in my new book, The End of Sex. And the future I see in that is 20 to 40 years off, I think but one in which most babies born to people with good health coverage anywhere in the world will not be conceived in bed or in the backseat of a car, but conceived in a clinic using most often a a sperm sample obtained in a very old-fashioned way from the man, but eggs obtained in a high-tech way. Right now, the rate-limiting factor for in vitro fertilization is egg harvest, Ripening and harvesting eggs is 90% of the cost of IVF, it's 99% of the discomfort of IVF, and it's 100% of the risk of IVF. In the future, we will be able to take skin cells, turn them into what are called induced pluripotent stem cells, cells that are like human embryonic cells in the sense that they can become every cell type. Get those iPSCs, those induced pluripotent stem cells, on the path to become eggs, or when necessary sperm and that way you avoid egg harvest, you avoid that cost and that risk and that unpleasantness. Instead you've got a two millimeter skin biopsy Um, and you get eggs. How many eggs do you get? How many eggs do you want? You do egg harvest, you might get zero, you might get 25, you'll usually get around 10 or 12. You make them from iPSCs and you could have hundreds, thousands or millions. My my expectation is people will make about 100 embryos, and then each one of those 100 embryos will receive whole genome sequencing through preimplantation genetic diagnosis, which has been around for 25 years. Most people s- still haven't heard of this. They think it's science fiction. You take one or a few cells from an early embryo, test them, and figure out what that says about the embryo and whether you want to try to implant it, to transfer it for implantation and pregnancy you get whole genome sequence on all 100. The parents will be asked, what do you want to know about them? And based on the information that they get, will be asked, which ones do you want? But they will not be getting a perfect baby. You're There's pr- no such thing, yeah. as any parent will say. Yep. No you're a parent, thing. I'm a parent, we understand that, which I think many of us didn't understand until we became parents, although our parents certainly understood it really well based on us. Um, what you'll get is a choice of based on a variety of genetic traits which of the embryos you like which are acceptable which are unacceptable some of them will be will have the wrong number of chromosomes and would probably never actually become a baby it's easy to they decide they just simply weren't viable right it's easy to decide not to implant those others would have a serious disease. Say three copies of chromosome 18, which is uh, a nasty trisomy 18, you wouldn't use that. For many though, for most of them, you're going to be in this, I think, very difficult situation where, well, this one has neither of these remaining 10 have any serious, powerful genetic disease. This one's got a somewhat higher risk of schizophrenia, but a lower risk of diabetes. This one's got a lower risk of schizophrenia, but a higher risk of Alzheimer's disease. And by the way, it's going to be a tall girl with dark hair. This one is at somewhat higher risk for colon cancer, at somewhat lower risk for breast cancer, at somewhat higher risk for heart disease. Looks like it has a chance to be a 75% chance of being in the top half in musical ability. So what are you going to do with all those decisions? It will make life more difficult in a sense because it's giving you more decisions to make on things that are hard to balance out but, against each other.
2: These are difficult choices. Let, let's unpack something for a second. Sure. First of all, everything you mentioned, that entire process... Utilizes technologies that eg- exist but are, just aren't mature enough, like the idea of IPS cells. We've discussed on this podcast many times. It's won a Nobel Prize for that work, right? And the idea of
4: the land, uh, world land speed record time. Kenya exactly.
2: got that Nobel, I think, five years after he did the work. Well, we'll see if, J- uh, if Jennifer Downo beats him. Um, the uh, but the idea of human whole human genome testing has existed. Yeah. So you're not prognosticating new technologies. You're just you're you're suggesting that they're going to mature.
4: So there, there are just a couple of cha- a couple of advances and only one real change on the whole genome sequencing that's uh, already been done with single cells from human embryos. The price needs to keep going down, but the price has fallen a thousandfold in just a few years. It's 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 not going to get to zero, but it will get. I think in the twenty to forty years I'm allowing, cheap enough. IPSCs, making uh, IPSCs is now pretty much routine. Differentiating them the way you want is not, but it's getting there. There was an article just yesterday about a new Stanford paper on success. This was with embryonic stem cells, not induced pluripotent, but getting pure samples of 12 different cell types. Um, There is so much interest in IPSCs for so many reasons that we are going to understand them better. Making the jump to gametes is a jump, but it's already been made in mice. There have been mouse pups born from both eggs and sperm derived from mouse both embryonic and induced pluripotent stem cells. There have been human primordial gametocytes made from this. No one has yet gone to the human final egg and sperm, but I don't see any reason to think. You, you don't won't. see a,
2: a scientific reason. Yeah, but we're gonna come to the yeah, other yeah, yeah, side yeah. of but, that. but,
4: but you know, science, biology is complicated. And it's it's one of the reasons I love it. It's a lot like law. You can never be completely certain. There are a lot of rules. They got a lot of exceptions. There are a lot of special cases. But I see no good reason to think that can't happen. I do think there'll have to be a long period of safety testing to make sure that babies made from these cells would be as safe as other ways of reproduction. Perfect safety is never attainable in anything. But so I think there will be work. The other twist, and this is sort of a side issue in the book that would require another jump, I think we will be able to take skin cells from men and make them into sperm but also make them into eggs and skin cells from women and make them into not only eggs but sperm, that hasn't been done yet. It's a little tricky, especially when you want to have a a sperm made from a woman that allows a boy to be born because you'd need to add a Y chromosome somewhere. There are some definite technical issues there. But again, 20 to 40 years
2: is a long time, and
4: I suspect
2: those will be worked out. So I want to unpack what you said earlier even further, this idea of it being technically feasible uh, we can accept but you painted this picture of you have an increased probability of X if you choose this embryo. You have The baby has an increased probability of Y if you choose this chromosome. Maybe X and Y aren't the right variables <laughs> to choose in this case. Huh. Uh, but you paint a picture of ambiguity, yeah. which seems to fly in the face of the idea of that this will become reality. So I think... One of the
4: challenges for this will be to get real people to live with and deal with ambiguity. We do it all the time. Particularly in medicine, we do it all the time, but we don't like to think about it. You know, when our doctor says this will work, we want to believe it, even though our doctor knows, and at some level we know, it's a probabilistic assessment. Um, I do think what will attract parents first and most will be the more certain things. So there are about 6,000 early onset genetic diseases that are almost all nasty. Happily they're almost all rare, but if you take 6,000 diseases and you and add them up, them. Yeah. you get one or two percent of births. And,
2: and you're talking about stuff like Tay-Sachs? And Tay-Sachs
4: disease, um, trisomy 13 and 18, for some people trisomy 21, others would say that's not so bad. Uh, uh, in a lot th- of cases alpha you're... or Also beta thalassemia. And and 5,000 others that, whose names neither one of us has ever, ever heard of.
2: And this categorization, a lot of these diseases, beyond being nasty, are, a lot of them are fatal.
4: Yes. They're fatal they're, or extremely disabling or, in some cases, both. I think Tay-Sachs is one of the worst imaginable diseases. Healthy children are born, and over a few years, their brains turn to mush. So you see retrogression leading inevitably to death by about four or five, if not earlier. Each one of these diseases is relatively rare. But you add them up, and any any birth has a 1% to 2% chance of this. I think that's what most parents will turn to this for, to avoid that 1% or 2% chance, especially if it's proven safe and effective, if it's been approved by regulators, and if it's cheap or even free. Some people will go farther and want to look at things like BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations or APOE4 status or other things. So we're talking about breast cancer and Alzheimer's at this point. uh, Other things associated with diseases that aren't early onset. And then some will be interested in cosmetics. Some will, you know, hair color, skin color, eye color. Some will, sometimes as a major issue, sometimes as kind of an ancillary tiebreaker. Okay, here are these two embryos that otherwise look okay. Do we want the taller one or the shorter one?
2: I'm going to pause this before we lead into that area where science and science fiction are are blurred here, because Mm -hmm. it is very true. Like this idea of all these stories we've dealt with seems to come into fore here. But I want to talk about the economics, which you've highlighted. Why do you think it'll be cheaper? Because IVF right now, as you say, incredibly expensive, and it's only available generally to wealthy, affluent communities. It's not available in third world countries yeah. for the most part.
4: Well, it is to the rich in third world countries. But but yes, it is. And it, it varies. In some countries, it's covered by national health insurance. In other countries, it's not. Bare bones IVF in the US is about $15,000 for which you typically get about a one in three chance of having a baby. So it's not a good deal. Most of that cost is egg harvest. So we have to figure out what the guess at what the costs of stem cell derivation and deriv and turning and uh, turning them into eggs will be uh, but with practice i think that will be relatively low but the key is it's not that it won't cost money everything costs something it's that the parents i think will not face that price because it will almost certainly be if it works something that will save healthcare systems money so Predicting healthcare costs than anything, even today, is crazy. Twenty years in the future is crazy squared. But I'll do it anyway. Let's say it costs ten thousand dollars to make a baby this way, which I think is going to be roughly plausible. Hundred babies is a million dollars. If making a hundred babies this way avoids one or two cases of early onset genetic diseases, how much money are you saving?
2: Yeah, I mean, those diseases must cost millions. To
4: tens, you know, you're saving ten million plus. And in the longer term, you may be saving cancer cases and Alzheimer's cases. So I think healthcare systems, whether they're private or public, will have a financial incentive to encourage people to do this and make it free to them. And that has the further advantage of eliminating the, the concerns about differential access between the rich and poor, at least within a relatively rich country. I think... You know, it could be throughout the United States, throughout Western Europe, throughout East Asia. Everyone gets access to this. It would be a long time before people in the Central African Republic or in the Amazon of Brazil or in Laos have access to this.
2: It also brings up an interesting point where we have individual choice versus the choice of the many, of the society, the state, or the insurer in this case. Um, now we're in a situation where... Could those be in opposition? Sure.
4: Um, one of the things I worry about, so the first part of the book is really background science intended to, to help lay people really understand it. And it's a part I'm proud about, although I'm uh, quite proud of, although it's not uh, the meat of the argument. The second part is the practical reasons why I think this will happen. The third part is, is things to be concerned about. And high on my list of things to be concerned about is coercion. Is a government or an insurer or a mother in law or somebody else saying, you have to do this, you can't do that, you can't transfer this uh, embryo because it shows ha- it's got too high a risk of schizophrenia, uh, you have to use this system. Um, I can even imagine in some cultures, in some countries, saying, well, we've discovered a gene we think is linked to political loyalty, so
2: you can only transfer embryos that will love the dear leader. And, and before we even suggest that, you're saying that with a wry smile. I mean, history is littered with instances of that already.
4: Yep, yep. Uh, the fact that something is completely scientifically implausible has not kept people from pursuing it. So I think there are both the things that are plausible and realistic, uh, I can certainly imagine some societies saying, you may not transfer an embryo that has a high risk of being intellectually, uh, intellectually disabled. I don't think the US would do that. I can imagine cultures that would do that. Um, those make sense in some, uh, unlike the political loyalty, that makes some scientific sense. I my own position is parents are the ones who should make these decisions even though with 7.3 billion people it means there's going to be some crazy parents out there who will make decisions I would not like but I trust parents to have the interests of their children at heart more closely than I trust governments to
2: Well you're a more trusting person than I
4: let's just say Well I'm, maybe I'm more trusting in parents. Maybe you're more trusting in governments. Yeah,
2: maybe maybe that's true. I, I want to come back to this uh, this overall process. The picture you paint of walking into a doctor's office and making selections, yeah, as opposed to this being in a bedroom or back of a car, as you suggested, it's deeply unromantic. And yep. I wonder, it, do you also see like, a barrier to this? Just our own humanity and our own romanticism of what becoming a parent is.
4: Well, I think first I'd distinguish between humanity and romanticism. But I do think there will be people who will not do this, either because of religious grounds, philosophical grounds, romantic grounds, or because they're dumb teenagers who get pregnant in the backseat of a car. That's never going to go away. Um, But I also think, particularly as people become more comfortable with genetic technologies, the idea of eliminating that 1% to 2% chance of having a really seriously ill child and eliminating it without needing abortion will be very attractive to many people. Not, to, not enough to make the, to slide the decision over for everyone. Add to that the, the improvement in some of the later onset disease issues. So I think people who have, I think there'll be a lot of variation from person to person and culture to culture. Um, But looking at the United States, my guess is more than half of babies are likely to be conceived this way, where parents decide, you know, we want to plan this, we want our baby to be healthy. And yes, getting pregnant the old-fashioned way, rolling the dice has some appeal. But in so many other areas of my life, I do not just roll the dice, I prepare. I look, I try to figure out what the pluses and minuses are and try to make the right decision And I think adding to this, of course, will be an advertising campaign from the uh, the fertility clinics. You know, you would spend X amount on your car. You want to get the best car. Why don't you want to get the best baby? Now, those will be deeply disconcerting because they will undoubtedly be overhyped and exaggerated.
2: I was disconcerted by the 3D rendition of ultrasound picture that I have of my child. Yeah, so so I'm, I'm old I am this is a level might, up. Yeah, I'm, old, I'm old enough that my kids look
4: like weather uh, radar. But uh, I know what you mean. Um, but I think, yeah, there will be people who will never do this for whatever set of reasons. And I hope they continue to be allowed to never do this. There will also be early adopters who jump into it probably too early, who go to clinics, unapproved clinics in foreign countries before the FDA approves this, and there'll be the great mass in between who slowly gets comfortable with it, and and many of whom decide avoiding these risks to my future children is worth taking a little romance out of making babies.
2: I want to come to that philosophical position. We've had a longstanding conversation on abortion here in the United States that seemingly hasn't progressed in either direction very much in the last 20 years. Do you see people on either side of that having philosophical objections to this in mass? Because the way you sort of framed it is that the, philosoph- the philosophical objectors may not be a majority.
4: I don't think they'll be a majority, but I also think they will not be easily uh, pigeonholed. I think there'll be people on both the left and the right, on both the pro-choice and the pro-life, as they they describe themselves, sides who are opposed to this and those who are in favor. The U.S. is such a, I was about to say bizarre, but let me just say unusual and fascinating country. We have one of the strongest anti-abortion movements in the world. We also have the least regulated assisted reproductive industry in the world that's odd. The Vatican doesn't like IVF. Pro-life people should not like IVF because it makes embryos that end up not getting used. And yet there's been no political effort to stop IVF in the U.S. And I think it's a combination of a deep libertarian sense that, damn it, parents should be able to do what they want with their kids, coupled with the fact that this is giving people healthy children— And everybody on both sides wants people who want children to have healthy children. So I think the politics of this in the U.S. will be generally favorable. I can certainly imagine some states saying, well, you can do this for serious diseases, but you can't do it for eye color, or you can't do it for boy or girl, or you can't do it for IQ. But I also suspect there will be states that say you do it for anything. And reproductive tourism already exists and can get
2: much more extensive both within the United States and between different countries. So mentioning reproductive tourism, do you see the U.S. being the adopter of this, the early adopter of something like this? Or are there other cultures that are much more suited to this kind of so leap forward?
4: I think that's going to be really interesting to watch. There are ways in which the U.S., is likely to be an early adopter. We're relatively comfortable with technology. We're relatively comfortable with people paying out of pocket for medical care. And although I think in the long run, it'll be free for everybody. In the early cases, it will be people paying for it. On the other hand, I think there are cultures where embryos are much less cherished or where far fewer people put a high moral status on embryos and where improving public health often will take precedence over parental wishes. Part of me thinks it'll be East Asia that adopts first. Part of me thinks it's the U.S. I guess my balanced view is it'll be bits and pieces, neck and neck between those, with some U.S. states being very, very uh, early adopters, some East Asian areas being early adopters, and others lagging behind. I think Latin America, for example, is likely to be a slower adopter. Because Catholicism and anti abortion uh, issues are much stronger there. Germany, because of their history with Nazi, terrible Nazi abuses of eugenics, is likely to be a slower adopter. So I think there will be cultural changes. Um, you know, I, I look at what China has done in the last 30 years in terms of regulating reproduction, and I have to believe China is going to be an early adopter, and that's. 20% of the world's population. The other wild card that's also about 20% of the world's population that I wonder about and really don't have a strong sense of is India and which way it will go. Uh, it doesn't. I think it also will have large chunks of the population that won't have access to this for monetary reasons, whereas I think China is more likely to make it widely available. But on the international scene, I see India as a really interesting question mark. I think the U.S. and Canada, some of Western Europe, but not all of it, East Asia, Australia, major early
2: adopters. There's one scientific technology we haven't really talked about that's probably going to have a big impact on this, and that's the gene editing technologies that have started to emerge, both the editing technologies of CRISPR and then just the fully synthetic build it from scratch technologies that are now being uh, proposed. Where do they potentially fit into this conversation? So CRISPR was a pain in my butt.
4: (laughs) This book was a five-year gestation period, uh, which was way too long. And through most of it, it, it's clear to me that embryo selection versus embryo editing are two different paths forward. And for most of it, I was able to write in drafts. Embryo selection is much faster, will be here much sooner. We've done PGD, pre-implantation genetic diagnosis, for over 25 years. 8,000 babies a year are born in the US after PGD. It's it's ready for prime time. Gene editing is going to be farther away. Well, then CRISPR comes along and gene editing takes a great leap forward. I still think gene editing will be farther away because it adds one more big question mark, the safety of the gene editing in terms throughout the developmental process. Uh, So I think regulatory and safety issues are likely to still put that about a decade behind. The second issue with gene editing, though, is how many people will need to do it. To avoid genetic disease, you rarely need to do gene editing if you can do embryo selection. There there are a few exceptions, you know, people who are homozygous for an autosomal dominant or two people with the same
2: autosomal recessive disease who will have are kids rare, together. Though. They're rare. So you won't really need it. Well, gene editing brings up the, the the science fiction idea of being able to do the blue eyes, the Right. It's the designer baby. Yeah, it's the de- design
4: fully designed right, baby. Right, right. So, so right. With 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 embryo selection, what you you can only get out what you put in. Right, two people who are both blood type O are going to have a blood type O baby, and unless there's some unexpected mutation, gene editing would let them have a type A baby, or a type B or AB baby, or another com. You know, most of the things we care about are too complicated to be able to say what you would need in order to get blonde hair or blue eyes, let alone a good musical ability or a good sports ability. And I think that's going to continue to be true. But I do think that in, say, 40 or 50 years, there are people who will try gene editing, assuming we find some really attractive targets for it, and assuming that it too proves to be safe and effective. Um, The whole genome synthesis, I really wonder about its value. Um, It's at least a decade or two off, even as a research matter, let alone in clinical use. And by that time, you know, CRISPR is not the end of the story for gene editing. I think it's the inflection point. It's the Model T where things go from being expensive, difficult, crappy, and rare to common and widely used, but we don't drive Model Ts anymore. We won't be probably using CRISPR, certainly not CRISPR-Cas9 in 20 years. Whatever we're using is probably going to be able to edit a chromosome cheaper, more effectively, and, and more... Um, more certainly than building one from scratch would be? It's an open empirical question, but I'm not convinced that whole chromosome synthesis has much of a future.
2: This is a slightly tangential question, but, you know, we're in the midst of the big patent battle that's yeah. happening around CRISPR right now. And it brings up this idea of, of who's going to own the technologies and profit from them. And you certainly intimated, like, somebody's going to make money. Somewhere along the line, who's paying, it's going to cost something, somebody right. has to pay for it. Do you feel that the involvement of, uh, of sort of outside business perspectives are going to help ex- accelerate this, impede, or have some other unforeseen impact?
4: So I certainly think the country, the U.S.'s 500 IVF clinics will play a big role in accelerating this, um, even though ironically, right now they're highly profitable because they're almost never covered by insurance. This, I think, would bring them into insurance coverage, which would cut their per-person profit, but it would expand their market from 160,000 people to 3 million people, more or less, uh, 2 million to 4 million, somewhere in there. So I think they'll be a big force. The patent issue, my guess is it's not going to turn out to be very important because, again, CRISPR-Cas9 is not the be-all and the end-all, and the ability to invent around it. um well, has already been done thousands of times by millions of different bacterial species. We didn't, yeah, I, I think Jennifer uh, Doudna's work and Emmanuel Charpentier's work and Feng Shang's work, fantastic. They didn't invent this. Bacteria invented it billions of years ago. And there are a lot of bacteria out there. So whether it's the Broad or the UC or whoever else ends up with a patent, if there is a patent on CRISPR-Cas9, Somebody's kind of come up with crispier. Some, they're already <laughs> coming up with things other than Cas9. Um, so I my guess is the inventor round will make the patent rights here not particularly
2: restraining. We had Siddhartha Mukherjee on the show a couple weeks ago, and he intimated that a lot of these conversations around genetics, we're behind. We should have been talking about this five years ago, that the society writ large is – Uh, largely ignoring it, let alone the political discourse ignoring it. How do you feel like we are doing in having these conversations? Because 20 years sounds far away, but it's not.
4: Yeah, I'm starting my 32nd year as teaching at Stanford Law School, uh, and my kids are now 27 and 24. So it's very clear to me that 20 years is, is looking forward. It's a long time looking backwards. It's a blink of the eye. I think we are not doing terribly, but we're not doing well. There is some discussion. There are some groups that are focusing on this. You even get politicians from time to time who pay some attention to these issues. But it's not sophisticated enough. It's not subtle enough. It's at the level of Gattaca and Brave New World. Most, And I I blame in part some scientists, some media. Most of the public thinks genes are much more powerful than geneticists think they are. You know? The public thinks genes are magic and, and do everything uh, and we know that's not really true. I actually think one of the nice side effects of what I call easy PGD will be living examples to people that however carefully you pick your embryos for their genes, they're still going to surprise you in lots and lots of ways when they turn into kids. So I think we need more discussion. I think we need more good discussion. And how we get there is tricky, but I think a combination of focus by nonprofit organizations, government organizations, people writing more books, uh, more, more podcasts, more articles, but ones that portray some of the complexity and subtleties of the issue you never get to a point where 100% of the population understands anything. What you hope for, I think, is 5 to 10 to 15% who actually feel pretty comfortable with it, uh and and the rest who have some understanding of it in order to be able to make good movements and in order to really be able to to have good legislation come out. So there's more to be done um We're not in the dark ages, uh, but uh, (laughs) it's a long way to go.
2: So I'm going to imagine a future. I'm going to rewind the clock for you a little bit and uh, imagine a future that that technology was available when you were having kids. Would would you have gone down that path yourself?
4: That's a great question. Um, So if I had these choices today, or if my wife and I had these choices today, clearly, I would argue with her quite strongly. I know, where my, I know where the veto lies, but my preference would be we look for all the nasty, highly penetrant childhood genetic diseases. We look at some of the later in life serious diseases that are substantially highly penetrant, things like BRCA1, BRCA2 mutations, Lynch syndrome mutations for colon cancer certainly presenilin-1 for early-onset Alzheimer's, maybe APOE4 for late-onset Alzheimer's. I don't think I'd care much about the cosmetics. I might do it as a matter of interest or maybe a tiebreaker. It's not a big deal to me. The behavioral traits I'm not sure about because it is my guess that even in 20 to 40 years, we won't be able to say much. We'll be able to say 60% chance of being in the top half, 12% chance of being in the top 10%. That's not very powerful. Boy or girl, I think with the first child, I wouldn't care. With the second child, I think, depending in part on what happened with the first child. But I think in general, um, I'd want to have two kids and i like to have one of each. So for the second child, I probably would look at sex in order to, to do family balance.
2: So that's where I think I would be. But talk to me in 20 to 40 years. Hank Greeley, thank you so much for bringing up all of these incredible ethical issues that face us in the future. Well,
4: well thank you. I do, I, and I really applaud your podcast for taking this on because we, our children, and certainly our grandchildren, are going to face these questions. It is not too soon to start worrying about it. it. It may even be a little late. And ways to get the broader public interested and knowledgeable about these issues are crucial. To our ability to to get the most out of the technology is too optimistic, but to avoid a few catastrophes, that'd be good. And <laughs> so uh, you're doing good work. Thank you.
1: So there are a couple of things in that interview that uh, you know made me smile, and you know, one of them was you describing that uh, you know the the, the sort of way in which you guys decided to have kids and and how things shifted and you know there, I feel like you left a few things out but uh, I'm gonna <laughs> I'm gonna leave you off the hook there because there are so many other interesting things to talk about um, and and one of them really is this you know idea of how different the world would be if this was something that everybody had access to so if if really you could just choose on the basis of you know to getting some pluripotent skin cells and now creating a baby, the time and and type of child that you want, you know, how that would fundamentally change so many life decisions that we make. Um, and, you know, for sometimes for the good and sometimes for the not so good, I don't think we can predict that. But the thing that kind of still nags at me a little bit is this notion that, you know, we often... Underestimate how long it takes for technology to progress, but we also underestimate the cultural shifts that happen within that time frame. So, you know, for example, people would have thought that by 2016, you know, we'd all be in uh, cars that don't require gas and they can fly around and, you know, it's sort of Jetson's world. Um, but nobody, would, I think, 20 years ago would have predicted just how ubiquitous smartphones would be and how that has changed our culture that you have you know people running around chasing virtual creatures in in parks
2: (laughs) oh pokemon uh i understand what you mean and the uh, i struggled with his 20-year number um because i always have this detector when scientists give predictive numbers in the number of years and Five usually tells me that they kind of know something is afoot and it's going to happen soon. Ten usually is my code word for they have no idea when it's going to happen. And then so when I heard 20, I was like, what does that mean? But what really spoke to me about this becoming a reality that I was not expecting is when he sat down and started doing the math with me about the cost of having a kid with Tay-Sachs or one of those other debilitating diseases versus the economics of these technologies if they go forward like we expect. And if there's one thing that's more predictable than what technology has emerged, you know, we don't have our hover cars, as you said, we do know that the technology that has emerged has reduced in cost significantly over that period of time. And I think that's a more predictable curve for us to look at. So if that economic price goes down so much, we're going to save millions upon millions of dollars per avoidance of, of these diseases. And I think that's a really strong argument. It's a clinical argument, but it's isn't it a really strong argument?
1: Yeah, I totally agree. The money question is a big one. And there is also, though, this this other side to it, which is, you know, if you eliminate any children that have uh, genetic disorders that still has a huge impact on society. And I've heard parents argue who, uh, uh, you know, especially advocates for individuals with uh, different disabilities, that there is a benefit to having um, people in society that, have certain disabilities to the entire society because it helps us understand empathy and we can learn um, from these individuals and so forth. And certainly there will still be people who will be injured, obviously, um, and have, you know, still will still have suffering um, from that perspective. So here we're really talking about just eliminating genetic disorders. But I can't help but think about just you know, the kind of one step forward. I mean, maybe you're right. maybe maybe this will be entirely or almost entirely limited to genetic disorders. Um, but I already feel like, in terms of how IVF is used, um, you know, we have people who are able to have children later in life, and so choosing to do so uh, because it's because it's it's available to them, um, not necessarily, because it's the right decision for society, which I- I'm not saying it is or it isn't.
2: The issue of parents being able to have kids is has an inertia that's hard to avoid, and this makes it even easier than IVF. And I agree with Hank's assertion that that is going to uh, give this momentum that's going to be hard to argue with. Uh, but I am still very skeptical that this is a reality we're going to see and I and you could hear my bias in the question that I asked like I don't feel like a lot of conversations regarding reproductive rights have moved at all in the last 20 years and I think that's indicative of how slow the conversation around how we reproduce moves given the emotional ties that exist um, in this arena so I have a really hard time actually seeing this happen, even though I think the arguments to it happening are strong from the economic and science side.
1: Yeah, I, I agree. You know, and I I still am very skeptical of the, you know, science and technology leap, as I mentioned, um, sort of at the top of our conversation here, where, you know, I, I really don't think in 20 years we will be able to create a sperm and an egg and a you know, viable embryo and ultimately a child from one individual's skin cells. <laughs> I, I just, I, I don't think we're going to, we can get there in 20 years, 40 years, maybe, but certainly not 20 years. But I still think that it's it's worth thinking about what this kind of a shift is, is having, you know, with the effect that it's having uh, on the way in which we, uh, you know, decide, make sort of major life choices, um, and of course, the whole idea of a family unit is shifting in a lot of places. Um, and, you know, that that is often a good thing for society in the sense that um, you can have you know, families that are more inclusive and and, and so forth and, and give people opportunities. But, you know, it also, yeah, it, it will it will have an impact on our culture, I think, uh, even if the technology isn't uh, quite there all the way. um, Because I think already just the opportunity to have uh, children later in life through IVF is changing uh, culture in ways that maybe we wouldn't have thought about 30, 40 years ago. So
2: I'll ask you the same question I ended with Hank. If you had the chance to use this type of technology, would you have done it?
1: Uh, you know, I probably would have done it at a time in which I wanted to have a baby. Uh, because the the part that I find annoying is the ins- uncertainty, you know, trying and, and not knowing is it gonna be this month? Is it going to be next month? Is it going to be the month after that? I mean, I'm very much a planner. You know, I have a, an active career. And I want to know exactly when I can slate in uh, maternity leave and, and all the other aspects of, of having kids. And, you know, sometimes I I. Envy my friends who have, uh, you know, IVF, not obviously because they had to go that route uh, because they were having trouble conceiving. Without the intervention, that part is really difficult and and involves a lot of suffering. Um, But then once they have, you know, a series of embryos, they can just decide, okay, you know, let's try now uh, for the next implant. And I know the implantation success rate isn't 100%. It's far, far from it. uh, But it still feels like you have more control um, than someone who is, you know, just having sex
2: (laughs) i'd like to think i would have gone this route too for the same reasons like certainty predictability all of those things and i think there is no way my wife would have agreed to it so (laughs) i think uh i probably would have lost that argument um but it's a good future to indulge in
1: absolutely So that's it for another episode. And I want to thank you for joining us for this installment of Inquiring Minds. And we'd like to thank our supporters on our Patreon campaign, especially David Noel, John Kirk, Jordan Millar, Haring Chen, Nick Cadillac, and Sean Johnson. Thank you so much. You can visit our website at inquiringshow.tumblr.com, and you can support us at patreon.com inquiringminds. You can also find us on Twitter at inquiringshow and Facebook, and you can send us comments, feedback, future guest ideas, or anything else you'd like to inquiringminds at climatedesk.org.
2: Inquiring Minds is produced by Ethan Hawk Groupie, Adam Isaac, in cooperation with The Climate Desk. Our research assistant is Caitlin Smith. Our music is provided by award winning producer Rian Chian.
1: And we're your hosts. I'm Andre Viscontis. You can find me on Twitter at IndreVis.
2: And I'm Kishore Hari at Science Quiche. See you next week.
0: BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022 by making investments from coast to coast.